Here's the question. How do you successfully transition into your first official leadership role, build the confidence and competence to lead your team effectively, and establish yourself as a respected and trusted leader across the organization? That's the question, and this show provides the answers. Welcome to the Manager Track Podcast. I'm your host, Ramona Shaw, and I'm on a mission to create workplaces where work is not seen as a source of stress, but as a source of contribution, connection, and fulfillment. And this transition starts with developing a new generation of leaders. I'm a leadership coach, a mom of three, a coffee lover, and a travel enthusiast. Stick around, because in this show, you'll learn how to think, communicate, and act to become a confident, high-performing leader people love to work with. Let's go. This week's episode of the Manager Track podcast is a very unique episode. The reason is that the roles are a bit reversed. I'm being interviewed by one of my clients, Joshua Zemberg, who is the Director of Engineering at Product Board, a software startup. I had the opportunity to work with Joshua over the course of about two years through a company called Better Manager. Joshua is a vulnerable leader, he is an inspiring leader, and as you'll hear in our conversation, we're going pretty deep into some examples where he was struggling, the many insights and lessons he learned through leadership coaching, what it meant to him personally, and how it helped him elevate his career and stand out as a leader in his organization. And if you've ever thought about coaching, or if you ever wondered what leadership coaching is like, or if you're simply looking for ways to elevate your career, and you want to hear how others do it in different companies, in different positions, then you're in the right place. I'm excited to bring this conversation to you, and I'm so grateful for... I'm excited to bring this conversation to you, and I'm so grateful for Joshua and his team at Product Board who at Product Board who made this who made this happen. Without further ado, let's dive in. Here's a conversation between Joshua and myself. I have a really exciting guest today, Ramona Shaw, leadership and strategy coach, and not just any leadership and strategy coach, but in fact, my own. I was assigned Ramona as a coach as part of Product Board's engagement with Better Manager. She is someone who's been working with me and coaching me for quite some time and that I've had a really interesting and and beneficial relationship with. And I'm really excited not only to get some of her insights and ideas, which have been really helpful for me, but also to dig into some actual personal things that that she and I have have worked on together to really get concrete and hopefully um, share some of the the magic of what uh, a coaching relationship can really deliver um, to even uh, a senior leader or, or an experienced leader. Ramona does leadership coaching, workshops. She has her own podcast. Our website is RamonaShaw.com. And more than just hearing her here today, I'm sure there are plenty of other ways that you can dig in and find out more about her ideas and even opportunities to work with her. So here we are, Ramona. It's you and me. Um, I said uh, before the last podcast that I was going for a, a more natural approach, a more personal approach, and we're now uh, going even another level beyond that because you are my actual leadership strategy management coach. We actually work together on stuff all the time. 
Yeah, yeah, and I'm excited to be on here with you. Yeah, Joshua. Me too, because we have some pretty pretty fun conversations, even some uproarious laughter from time to time, even when we're working on serious <laughs> stuff. So who knows what we could possibly get into today? To set the stage, I wrote down this sentence that I kind of liked, and it's a it's a sentiment that I've said to a few people that sort of uh, boggles my mind. Uh, I've been in this really crazy position where I've made a transition from an individual contributor to a director of engineering over 20 months at a hypergrowth startup, or right in the middle of which came a complete strategy and working model pivot in the face of the most unprecedented medical and economic event of the last hundred years. And my observation is that learning and growing and adapting enough to succeed in this environment has depended more on you, my leadership coach, than any other resource I have at my disposal. How could this possibly be true? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what a ride it's been. Um, and I want to add on to what you just shared uh, by also saying that as a leadership coach, it's actually a lot more about your ability to reflect and your ability to be challenged and to be open-minded, to take on new perspectives, to see things in a different light or try on new approaches than it has to do with me as a leadership coach. So the fact that you went through that intense growth journey during a time like this it's really a reflection on you way more so than it is a reflection on me, but I am that channel. And that I think is the beauty of what leadership development or coaching overall, uh, leadership coaching can do for people because it, it opens up um, and is a catalyst for growth that we otherwise might not be able to tap into. So if this ability to self-reflect and kind of be honest with oneself and, and uh, hold the mirror up to your own situation and performance is important. Uh, do you find that across the board, that's maybe harder for people under the circumstances that we're living in right now with, you know, forced stay at home and maybe higher levels of kind of work and life stress, or is there really no correlation in terms of across the board that this changes things for people? I think that it is more important than ever, but it also may be more difficult than ever because a lot of this has to do with seeing the value that coaching offers and that a leadership coach can bring to one's career, but then making the time because this is an investment that you make, right? So even though maybe a company be paying for it, you're investing time in your week to sit down and to have those conversations, you're thinking about your days and you're taking notes. You always come with topics to our conversations, meaning that you are prepared to talk about stuff. We dive right in, we get to the bottom of it. And that investment to block out time in your week to self-reflect is I think what makes a, a huge difference. And it is what pays off. Like you said, it's one of the biggest drivers that you noticed um, that in terms of your own growth. It, that is the payback. But immediately in that moment when you jump on our call, this is an investment that you make with, now, with no immediate return, right? Because you're not ending the call having scratched two things off your to-do list. So the urgent things have to be delayed in order to get that longer-term growth and benefit that you get back from it. And I think that trade-off is sometimes hard. And when we deal with a lot of 
urgent things. We may think that uh, we ha we need to prioritize our job, our immediate deliverables more so than that than we need to prioritize our career in our own growth. Understanding that that trade off is so worth it. I think that is that is key. Whenever we can um, prioritize long term growth over the short term gains that's when we um, tap into the full potential of growth. Uh, a quote that's been making the rounds of a number of meetings I've been attending at Product Board recently, I believe it comes from the book, The Phoenix Project, is something like improving daily work is more important than daily work. I think there's a bit of mm -hmm. that in what you just what you just said. Yeah, and it's that, it, and I think it's that continuous growth. Like you're on it, you're not doing one thing and then you're done. It is staying in it and continuously challenging yourself and growing because the, the, the famous quote here from Marshall Goldsmith is that what got you here won't get you there. And when you go through an accelerated growth journey from IC to a director role, then what got you to that first level is different than what will get you to the next level. So you constantly have to challenge and adapt uh, given the circumstances. Being able to improve and be challenged is huge. I've been through a number of different phases in terms of different titles, different roles, different sets of responsibilities in a very short time. I imagine you work with people who make those transitions over a span of 20 years. You probably work with some people who make them over a span of a few years under different sets of circumstances. For me, it feels like we've been going at a crazy pace. And so I guess I would be sort of congratulating myself on to some degree having succeeded, but that's not really what I'm after here. Is this an outlying experience for the kinds of people that you work with? Or are there really a lot of people out there who, because of the nature of sort of startup life or sort of the current way that work is done, that, you know, are finding themselves feeling like they've gone a half level up the career ladder every two and a half months, which is sort of what I've felt like. <laughs> uh, I think part of it is, is circumstantial. So when an opportunity arises and you are prepared and you jump into it, then part of this is you being prepared and wanting to jump in. But the other part is that there was an opportunity there. And so working with a lot of fast growing organizations, um, that happens often where people are you know, moving quickly as the organization grows and they have to keep up sort of with the growth of the organization. Uh, but I think what makes your, your experience a bit unique is that, um, that you are adapted with that growth so quickly that whenever an opportunity arose or whenever your position changed or you had a shift in terms of demands or team setup and, and structure that your way to adapt and your confidence that you can do this was those two parts are critical components. So one is the willingness to adapt, being open to change, sort of embracing it versus resisting it. And then the second is the, the confidence. You have this self-confidence that no matter what's getting thrown at you, that you can handle it and that you can figure it out. And I think maybe part having coaching and knowing that you have backup and knowing that you have support uh, maybe fueling that self-confidence, but those two parts are, I think, critical for anyone who is looking to sort of keep up with the pace that their company is growing and being ready that when opportunities arise, that they're there and ready for taking them on and being successful with those new opportunities. Yeah. One of the phrases that I used with you, and I maybe even used it to describe you on your 
the recommendation I wrote for you on LinkedIn is that you help me hold up the mirror to my own challenges and my own situation. Even those of us who have the desire to look at ourselves and think of a better solution, we can't always find the angle or the the piece of the picture that's sort of hiding in plain view. So you kind of hold up this special mirror and inhabit that mirror and mostly just let me look at it. And occasionally, when just looking at it isn't enough, you maybe tell me to hold it somewhere else or maybe look at a different quadrant. And I think that the way you do that is, I'm sure that's part of the coaching toolkit, but I think you mm-hmm. in particular seem to have, I don't know if I could describe it, but you have a particular flair for this um, personally. Well, thank you for the kind words. <laughs> I think it is, part of that is, if you look at like the universe of knowledge, there's the things we know we know, and then the things we know we don't know. Like, I know I don't speak certain languages. I know I don't, if I open a TV, I have no idea what, you know, what the different components are inside of a technical device. They're all the things that I know I don't know. And then what is where real growth happens and where we have so much potential that's, that's available to us is when we tap into the things we don't know, we don't know. So when you're coming into a coaching session and you have a challenge uh, for me to be able to tap into the things and like open up mirrors or ask you questions so that you can look at it from the, the places where you didn't realize there was something missing or there was another way to look at it. And the way we get into that sector of, I didn't know it that I don't know, is by someone asking you questions you would otherwise not ask yourself. It's not the questions that you would tackle yourself in your own mind as you go through your day. It takes that moment to step back, um, to sort of what we call, I walk up on the balcony, look down on what's currently going on, and then ask yourself those questions that get you into a different um, frame of mind to look at it from different perspectives. And that's where I think so much of, of people's potential and your, your strength, Joshua, your strength comes out by doing that and then, you know, grabbing it and applying it right away. So you're not procrastinating or overthinking. You're looking at it and you think like, wow, didn't see that. Yeah, so true. And then you go and implement. I think that's the, that's the second part that, you know, you got a lot out of couch coaching because it's not just insight. You're turning that insight into action right away. Yeah. And we're going to go into some more raw discussions of actual challenges that we worked on together coming up. But even as we're talking right now, and I think back on some of the big things that we solved, I'll give some examples because I think we will have a kind of engineering heavy audience. There were a couple of things about how to get better at moderating technical trade-off discussions. And there were some things about getting better at how to help the team communicate their technical uh, topics at the right times and in the right ways. And even as I'm listening to you right now for the last 10 minutes or however long it's been, it's still kind of shocking how much we have not talked about anything technical, even right now, today. So (laughs) how is it possible that you are my most valuable resource and yet we literally can't talk about any of the fundamental details of the kinds of technical problems that the teams I'm leading are trying to solve or the nuts and bolts of the the subjects that are coming up in the in the conversations where there's misunderstanding conflicts. How can you do this? How how, how does this work? 
Yeah, I think it's a question that many people have. And, and when I speak to, you know, new prospective clients that are, or who are interested in coaching, they often ask, what's your background? Tell me your story. You know, I'm looking at someone who really knows this particular field or has a background in engineering that they, and so they can help me and be a trusted advisor. I'd actually say sometimes that can be a disadvantage because if I knew a lot more about what you're doing in your day-to-day, I might be compelled to give you some technical advice. No one questions your technical expertise. You are in this role because of your technical expertise and because you know the team and because you know the company. No outside coach will know that better than you do. Um, So the value does not, from an outside coach, does not come from them knowing your role. It could actually be misleading because now I make it I I think that my expertise would also apply in your situation. And there's not one size fits all. You are not the same person as me. You have different strengths. You have a different leadership style. You have a unique technical expertise. You know the company better than any other outside person could. So the challenge, if I was actually an, an expert in your field, could be that I'm sort of seducing you to think about ways that I would think about, but that's not the right approach. And that's not what would make you more effective. That would that would sort of be copying an external, that would not be what's most helpful to you. Instead, what is helpful is that when you're challenged with something, um, which oftentimes comes from how we feel about ourselves, our confidence, our worries, our anxiety, how we deal with people, the people, we're all in the business of people and how we communicate with others how we influence, how we motivate, how we engage, how we resolve conflict, how we look at the problem and try to see them from different perspectives. And none of that has anything to do with the actual technical expertise that I trust and that I know that you have. And that's why you are in this role. I think even within my own company, one of the things I'd like us to be able to put some time, priority, budget, whatever we need behind is getting even our very technical managers, even our internal experts to be able to bring more of this human outsider perspective to some of their activities. Because you you kept referring to the fact that it's beneficial that you're not part of the company. Um, and that's what a part of what helps you maintain this sort of external perspective. But I think if you are internal to the company and you are a leader, you're a technical person and you're managing a technical person, even so still sometimes the core, maybe not the solution, but sort of the core eureka moment or the breakthrough and whatever the challenge is still comes from this moment of, do you have a good routine in the mornings uh, to, to, get, to prepare you to think well at, at work uh, during the day? Or is there something that's actually going on this week that's difficult, that's actually more difficult than the technical challenge that you're facing? And so uh, I just wanted to um, both accept your explanation and then put a little bit more on top of it, which I think that the, the, the company barrier is perhaps even something we should avoid relying on too much, because I think even those of us who work with, with people within our own company need to be able to take this perspective more often um, mm-hmm. to be successful or at least to, to to reach the highest levels of sort of success and satisfaction that we can have as people and as teams. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the the argument for why managers should be coaches is, is very similar. In today's day of age, it's not so much about constantly giving advice to someone, but it's 
as a manager, you're going to be a lot more effective and you're going to have a way more motivated and engaged team. If you keep asking your team more questions, you're more curious about their own ideas and their approach instead of trying to have everyone replicate the same uh, way that you do things, follow your ideas, follow your orders. Um, and it said really tapping into everyone's unique strength and expertise by asking questions that brings that to light and encourages them to think for themselves versus you being uh, very directive. And I think that is, you know, something that in, in a change and an evolution that we've seen over the last few decades in leadership development and for every single manager, even if they don't have an external party, an external coach, it's, the, it's very similar for them to look at it, not just I am the technical expert and therefore I'm going to give advice, but to always start off with saying, well, what do you think? What is your approach? How would you go about this? What are ways that you think you can solve this? Um, what have you already thought about? And ask those questions first uh, to challenge your team members before you just jump in and try to solve all the problems for them. And have you seen things that would indicate to you that sort of taking on this perspective and moving into this way of operating is actually harder for technical experts? Yeah, I think it's hard in general because we were trained, like if you think about it, from a young age, in school, there was like one right answer. There was a question in an answer. There was directive. There was this, the teacher who gave instructions and the student who was following uh, the directive. And as an individual contributor, especially in a technical field, it was all about doing the right thing. And there was one right way to go about it. And you learned it and you did it. And, and so the idea of giving advice and answering with solutions and providing solutions to problems is something that I think all of us have been trained to do from a really young, young age. I think it's for many of us, it's a, it's a way to really change and shift our mindset in how we show up and interact with other people. So going through that transition from being an IC to being an effective leader and a coach-like leader, that is a huge part. It's shifting that mindset to recognize that for me, I got to stop to constantly just give advice and provide solutions to everyone and instead challenge people more and be more curious and, and ask a lot more questions uh, first before big shift. And in, as a technical person, I think what may add and maybe an additional challenge is that a lot of technical people that I work with and highly analytical people, they want to do things the right way. And they may have been promoted because they were great at doing the right thing. So they have, their brain has gotten the message you're doing something right. Your way of doing it is good, gets you success, gets you the recognition. That's why you got promoted. And now all of a sudden you're telling me I shouldn't be doing this anymore. That sounds to our brain. That seems counterintuitive, right? So that wasn't that why I got promoted in the first place. Um, and so to step back and see, recognize, you know, there's different ways to do this, different approaches. And, and yes, that's why I got promoted. But again, what got me here is not what's going to get me there. So I have to shift and, and adapt my style a little bit to make sure that my team is motivated and engaged. And they're thinking for themselves as well. Do you think that the shift into this leadership role requires you to stop thinking about trying to 
get things right? Or do you think it's more that it's reframing what right means? Do you think you can still have that sort of objective of, I want to do this right. I want the right things to happen and not end up disappointed. Well, just because you're able to sort of reframe it in a way that works, or do you think you kind of need to abandon that goal altogether? Do you think the goal becomes something different? Yeah, I think it's a bit of a trade-off and situational. Um, there is this equation that I like to keep in mind or share with clients too. That's, I think it's also from Marshall Goldsmith um, originally, where it says that the success of a project is a function of the quality of the idea or the quality of the solution that you propose multiplied by the commitment to execution, which essentially means that in order for us to be most successful as a team and to run our uh, initiatives and our projects and our sprints successfully, I have to think about not just making the quality of the idea better and adding advice and giving suggestions constantly in order to bring that quality up. I also have to think about your commitment to execution because think about yourself, right? If you have a problem and you get to figure out how you're going to address it, you're a lot more motivated to tackle it and finish it if it's your idea versus if you have to execute someone else's plan, if that's not exactly aligned with how you would go about it. The motivation or the commitment to execution just drops a little bit. And so I have to keep that equation in mind and think, is it now worth for me to add my advice and maybe change the approach a little bit? Or am I now diminishing your commitment to execution more and demotivating you more than the benefits I get out of it? And so it's, it's, constantly thinking about that trade-off. And um, I think it's probably about a 50-50 decision where 50% of the times you would say, no, actually, this is now worth it for me to jump in and help them figure out what is a better solution and the, the, the right way to do this. And I have to be more directive. And then 50% of the time, it, it's probably to, to step back and say, you know what, I would do it differently, but they're going to get to the goal that we're, that we're shooting after and it's, it's going to be okay they'll be way more motivated to execute if it's their idea and therefore I'm going to let them run with it. I heard this framed in a couple of other ways, which was sort of high achievers, either training or instincts to always try to be right or always try to win, which is probably something that helped them catapult up a, a successful career up to a certain point up to now. And that essentially when you give advice or when you're trying to give a perspective different from someone else's, it's because now you think that the group will not be right or the group will not win if you don't inject your opinion. And so one of the ways I've heard it framed to sort of check that, check that instinct is to say to yourself, we don't have to win here. There's nothing that has to be won or we don't have to be right here. Yeah. Yeah, so true. And it's those, it's, it's a lot of them is those patterns that we've built in of, I have to be right, or it has to, we have to win, or we have to go fast and we have to get it done. Um, or we have to follow the procedure and the protocol. Those we must, or we should that are beliefs that often come from a, from a young age that, uh, that drive our behaviors ultimately. And I think one way to really benefit from coaching is when you're to go back to what we talked about in the beginning is 
when you recognize, oh, these are patterns and you know what, they really helped me in the past. And now based on my current situation and the role that I have, something else is needed. I need to be more flexible, maybe in my approach, or I need to let go of that belief that that's always the right solution or that we always have to win in order to be successful in, in the role that I'm currently holding. And being willing to do that and being willing to challenge yourself, that is, that is key. And I think that's what, that would, looking back at your own journey of growth is something that you've consistently been doing. But not all of us have a Ramona to help us on this journey. So I wanted to ask you, how can those of us who don't have a Ramona somehow get here or at least get part of the way here and also how did you get here if you didn't have today's Ramona to to show you the way <laughs> I think that so to answer your first question I think simply blocking out time in your calendar to self-reflect that costs you nothing um other than it could be 10 minutes at the end of each day. It could be an hour or half an hour at the end of each week or the beginning of each week to sit back and look at your calendar, look at the different needs um, of the people that you're meeting with that day, look at what's working, what's currently not working. That, that in itself and being disciplined about it and treating those meetings that you have with yourself to reflect on your day and to think about those questions that will illuminate some of that area of didn't know, I didn't know. Um, that is, and so treating those, treating those meetings as if you were meeting with the CEO, that would be the first thing to do. And it is the most, I think the most um, effective thing anyone can do. Uh, I once asked, just to give you a quick example, I once asked a very experienced executive coach who's been coaching for probably about 20 years. And I asked, what are some of the common patterns that you notice with the people who are very successful in their roles and get the most out of coaching? What are they doing or what are you coaching them on? What changes are they creating for themselves? And he said, the biggest, the biggest change that they can make um, that will get them the highest returns is if they block out time in their calendar for self-reflection. Daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, year and an annual basis, just consistently taking a step back, not trying to do stuff and taking taking to-dos off their to-do list, but but making time for self-reflection. That's the biggest change um, that that's correlating to their success and their growth. Yeah. So I've tried to do a number of different things in my life including being a director of engineering, but I've also tried to be an artist and I've tried to be a parent and I've tried to be a spouse. And I found what's kind of funny is that if you go looking for the best-selling book ever on how to be a good parent or how to handle being a parent or how to unblock yourself as an artist or any of these personal growth topics that you can imagine or even professional growth topics, Either the number one or number two or number three technique in all of these books is some version of the one you're talking about, which is basically blocking out undistracted time to support that endeavor and not be doing the actual work, but to be sort of reflecting on it and with not too high stakes also. Not like even though this is a very important 
meeting with yourself or session with yourself not to impose the same kind of pressure and strain and high stakes on it that you do with everything else that has to do with parenting your child or managing your fortune 500 company or whatever the topic happens to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so true. Um, and yet it's also one of the hardest things to do because for many of my clients, what they struggle with is that then they feel they're not doing the right thing or they almost feel guilty because they're taking time out of their day or they're declining other meetings because they have a meeting with themselves. Like, who am I to do that? Or I got a long list of to-dos and here I am just journaling or just sitting or just going on a walk. That doesn't seem right. It's just so counterintuitive in the moment. Um, it, and so I encourage people to think about, you know, how Warren Buffett structures his days or how if they read biographies or autobiographies about successful leaders and look for data points that they can pick up to to see how role models, their own role models, have implemented this process of self-reflection in their days and then allowing them to do the same because it starts with changing your mindset about what that means and why you need it. If you keep being in, in sort of the, the hamster wheel of constantly having to do things and being very tactical and always having to be busy in order to feel like you're doing work, that's the one thing that's going to keep you stuck. It is pretty black and white like that. One of the <laughs> one of the perspectives that I've enjoyed that is both, I think, useful and I think I usually laugh about it when I talk about it is one version of this concept I've heard of before is called the artist's date, which is from the book for how artists unblock themselves. And so you have to schedule mm -hmm. a weekly date with the artist and the artist is you. So you have to schedule a weekly date with yourself. And as you said, you have to make sure you don't cancel it and you have to commit to it and all these kinds of things. But the other thing I like about the artist date is that you are actually allowed to change the routine or change the agenda, but only if the artist agrees. So only if you agree. So you cannot say, I'm going to skip my artist date because I need to do my workout with my trainer instead. Because if you're doing that, it's because you feel guilty about skipping out on the trainer or whatever. But you are allowed mm -hmm. to say, I had planned to go for a walk, but instead I'm going to sit on my balcony and eat some ice cream. You are allowed to say that because mm -hmm. you checked in with yourself and you thought to yourself, I really think the thing that would make me feel good and give me a chance to pause and reflect today would be to sit on my balcony and eat some ice cream. And that one always makes me laugh when yeah. I talk about it. But I like that, um, that you can be playful about it so long as you're still committed to the principle and so long as you're still committed to yourself and your, and your goal. Yeah. Yeah. So true. And it's, I mean, if you look at it that way too, it shouldn't be something that's draining. It should be something that's fueling you, that keeps you and gives you energy back, that gets you excited again about what you're doing and that you ultimately do start seeing the returns of it because, you know, it bring up some examples that come up in coaching conversations is that, you know, in a coaching conversation, be this in one of that we might have had or that I have with other people where because we're looking at something, we're reflecting. And as a coach, I facilitate this self-reflection, but you could do this by yourself too, is that it, um, it comes to light that someone that maybe an employee is uh, disgruntled or an employee is, is sort of spreading a negative vibe in the team. And 
and that I do need to have this conversation. And before, maybe I didn't quite recognize the extent of it, or I kept sort of sugarcoating it and like, oh, it's just temporary, and that person's having a bad week, and it's going to be okay. And then in the moment, I recognize like, no, actually, for me to be the leader that I want to be, I think it's important that I address this with that person. And so come Monday, I will sit down and I have that conversation. And that conversation opens up like the Pandora box and something comes out that I would not have, didn't know about and, and changes the, the course of our relationship um, and makes it better and more connected and more trusted. And we are able to shift some things around that actually makes that person be way more satisfied in their job. And it wouldn't have happened or it would have been delayed for months if I was just so in the grind of things, not sitting back and reflecting of what is needed from me right now at a higher level. So because I'm looking at the clock and I know how much time we have left, I want to shift gears into what I hope will be kind of the most uh, wildly fun segment of this whole thing, which is that we agreed we're going <laughs> to we're going to review some of our, our greatest hits. We're going to talk through some some actual problems or, or challenges that I had that, that you helped me with. And first of all, I'm hoping this is going to be about as raw and edgy as this kind of content can get, because it's really about something that I struggled with. But also, I do hope that we can hit on some examples that are relevant specifically to our engineering leadership audience. So mm -hmm. the first one I want to talk about, and I think it is possibly my favorite one of all time, is this weekend where I felt some tension about off hours support duty in my team. And there were some incidents occurring, systems were maybe going down, maybe not going down. You're supposed to jump on our Slack and chat about it and talk about what's going on and how we're going to fix it. And there's one person who is ostensibly on call, but there's a fallback system for the person after that and the person after that if the first person doesn't respond. And even so, people sometimes jump in when it's not their turn. But on this particular weekend, the alarms were going off a lot. And various people were jumping in and feeling as though the person in front of them was maybe supposed to jump in, but wasn't available, or the person in front of them jumped in and didn't do it the way it was supposed to be done. And so then they had to come back. And they're not saying that in the, in the group uh, discussion, but they're sort of saying it to me individually. And I think to myself, oh, this is a perfect situation for a manager or leader to get involved in. I know that none of them really wants to point the finger at each other. They're just frustrated because it's the weekend. I can tell that this is all emotion. And the best time, the best thing to do is just call it out, get past it. We'll bring it up on Monday and we'll get down to the bottom of whether there are really any actual problems. But for now, my job is to step in and tell everybody that I support them all. And let's just find the best way to do this. And... <laughs> I wrote down what happened? I wrote down the I wrote down the <laughs> notes here so that I would remember exactly how I phrased this. So I, mm -hmm. I came into this this public discussion over the weekend and I said, Hey, listen, everybody, we all know that everybody in this team is a first class professional and that we all care a lot about each other. And it's always stressful when alarms are going off. And this was actually new for this team because previously these alerts would get routed to sort of a rotation in the whole company. And this was sort of new where certain kind of things came directly to this team. And so I said something like, there might be some kinks in the process that we haven't worked out yet, but I'm sure that nobody is 
ignoring the alarms. I'm sure that nobody is skipping out on their duties. We really just need to find the best way to handle this for the next 24 hours. And we'll get together on Monday and we'll figure out if anything went wrong. We'll take some steps forward. And I, I don't remember what I perceived at the time as the result. But on Monday, when we came to have this discussion, it was clear that something was wrong. Oh, and one thing I had been severely trying to avoid was not being the boss who was like, or manager who, who was like, why isn't this being taken care of properly? Why am I getting involved on a Saturday? Like, that was like the farthest thing from what I, what I wanted to say. And the reaction on Monday was sort of quiet and, and tense. And then maybe going into Tuesday and Wednesday, I had some individuals come to me and say things like, you know, I really think you should have handled that differently. You shouldn't have put so much pressure on everybody. You shouldn't have maybe, you know, given the impression that so-and-so was, you know, not really pulling their weight on the, the, the support over the weekend. And I thought to myself, what's going on here? That's exactly what I told myself I wasn't going to do and exactly what I wasn't going to say. And I even have it typed here in Slack. I can go back and look at it. What's going on here? And it was yeah. just so baffling that I had to go to, to Ramona. So what did you tell me? Yeah. <laughs> I think this is a classic example of when we're coming from the best intentions. We're like, I am the most compassionate in that moment. Like, I really want everyone to just you know, feel good about it, not be uh, pointing fingers. I want everyone to feel supported. I don't want to be the boss who's getting angry here. I, I handle this with, with, with sort of this ease and with compassion. And so you, you, you judge yourself based on your intentions that you had <laughs> handling that moment. Right. But this is, I call this, or this is called the awareness gap because we, that's how we judge ourselves. But then everyone else doesn't judge us based on our intentions. They don't, that's not what they're looking at. They're looking at your action or in this case, your Slack message. And then they're thinking, what do I make that mean? How do I interpret that? And then the impact you as Josh's actions had on them, that's what they use as a basis to judge, your, to judge you and your behavior. So you judging yourself based on your intention, someone else judges you based on the impact your actions had on them. Two different things. And that is where a lot of conflict or these misunderstandings come from. And so what I love, and I think it's a perfect example to why coaching has been so effective in, in this case and for you is because instead of saying, this is all drama, get over it. I was saying I'm understanding, I wasn't, <laughs> I was saying I'm compassionate and getting defensive in the moment. What you did instead is like, huh, interesting. Where is this coming from? Like, why do we have such a disconnect? Because that's not at all what I wanted. So you, instead of being defensive, you actually had that mindset of curiosity. And I think the first thing you can do in any moment where you're baffled or you think, why would you do this? Or why the heck would you say this? Or why do you interpret it that way? That is the moment to stop and think, hold on, there is something that I don't know or something that I don't see. So shift from being defensive into being curious. And then, yes, we had, a, you know, sort of, we broke these things apart and recognized, okay, why, what was the story that other people made up? Like what, how did they look at your Slack message? What was the impact on them? Do you remember what that was? Well, 
I'm sort of remembering something different, which I think is related, but it's not the direct answer to the question. So one of the things that we identified was that I came at this from a point of view of, I want to make absolutely sure that nobody gets negative impressions. So I want to set mm -hmm. the tone that nobody is getting the impression that somebody is sort of more to blame here or somebody is not following the procedure properly. And it seemed like the most obvious way to do that was to say up front, hey, I'm sure we all agree that that this is not happening. And your reaction to this was, oh, yeah, of course that didn't work. You introduced the idea into their heads. Of course they're going to think about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and that, but that is exactly because the impact they had. So they read this and they made this mean like, why would he even say they're finger pointing? Clearly, someone must be finger pointing. That's why he's saying that, right? Yeah, that by yeah. saying, I'm sure there's no finger pointing going on, I gave them the opportunity to consider whether there was any finger pointing going on. Exactly. And, and then exactly. in their fairly stressed out situation, they cut out all the intermediate steps and it was sort of just like, Josh said something about finger pointing. And therefore we thought about it. And why would he say that people were finger pointing? Like what? <laughs> Did you have a second answer that you were yeah. thinking of? Because that's the main thing that I remember. Were you thinking of something else when you asked me how it impacted people? No, no, I think that's it, right? So the um, the message is all well-intended of coming from this place of like, I get it, like don't, don't freak out and all that. But it also probably came from a place where you thought, well, hold on, I don't want any finger pointing or I don't like the finger pointing. If you even had like a slight idea that it could be finger pointing. And so introducing that message in Slack just had a different, it had a different impact on people than, than what you intended. And I think, you know, the awareness, I actually don't want to speak for yourself in terms of like, what did you take away from this situation? But I think it was a classic example of um, just looking at, you know, here's what I'm saying. And if I put myself in the shoes of the person who's now emotional and who is like stressed out about it or, or concerned about it, um, and they're reading it, what would I make that mean? Because there are facts, like the actual words that you wrote. And then the big part that really drives people and motivates people to take action or not action or to that triggers emotions. It's not the fact. It's all in the meaning about these facts. So putting yourself in the shoes of the other person, reading it, what could, what could the impact but be? But there was a subtlety to that one as well, remember, because while it was important to try to look at things from their perspective and not mine, remember also we had one person who I clearly knew was upset and did feel as if they were having to do more than their fair share. And we had another person who was not reachable, who I imagined probably had not done anything ill-intentioned or wrong, but might pick up the blame um, simply because this was a new situation. And somehow that was understanding their situation, but not the right way, because I was sort of being um, maybe almost like defensive on their behalf in advance. Not that I was saying their names mm -hmm. or anything. So this was super subtle, right? Because you're telling me now and then you were telling me, well, I do have to understand it's not just about my intentions and my perspective. It's sort of their situation and their what they receive that's also important. But I was also mm -hmm. really considering their individual positions and unfortunately turning those, I guess, into 
something like biases or, or weighty expectations on where this was supposed to go that somehow trickled through into either my, I guess it couldn't have been my tone of voice because it was written messages, but somehow, you know, subtly trickled through into the message. Uh, so that was a really, yeah, it, really sneaky one. Yeah, it, it totally. And by the way, it's very similar to, even though it's, it was writing, it's very similar to if you have to say sorry, like, you know, you did something and you have to apologize, but you don't really mean it. Like, you know, do you just for the audience, like recall a situation where you had to apologize, but you didn't really mean it. Even though you uttered the words, I'm sorry, or I apologize for 93% or, you know, 90 plus something percent, depending on the study, is nonverbal. So people pick up on it. Even in Slack, there's like this undertone or the way things are phrased, like, wait a second, what is this person trying to say? So our, our own thoughts and feelings, um, they come across through our actions, through our communication, they do come across, like people pick up on these things. And so getting really clear up front of like, I have to sort of clean house first with myself and really understand where am I coming from? Am I blaming or am I finger pointing? Um, clean house first, and then I can communicate. And I can be sensitive to whom do I communicate what? Because in this particular case, you dealt with like a range of people, one who could feel like someone was finger pointing at them, one who could be reading into the message as Josh thinks I am finger pointing, and then a whole range of people in between <laughs> who felt like, wait a second, who is finger pointing? Since when are we a team who is finger pointing? What am I missing? And you had like one message to all, and I think that was causing a lot of different stories uh, for them. Yeah, and you mentioned apologizing. I've referenced, I haven't gone into the details, but I've referenced on at least one previous episode of the podcast uh, occasions on which I've apologized to my team. And this was one such occasion after all this finally got resolved. So, and I, and I meant it. So, um, but also, Joshua, like, I want to like, just quickly like, acknowledge the fact that you bring this up. And I think it's so important that when, for anyone listening who is, you know, leading a team or thinking about leading a team and, and, and just also understand that we make those judgment calls, like in the moment, it didn't seem like a mistake. They're, they're not, if you think of the concept of mistake, there's really not any mistake in that sense, because the moment you did it, it felt like the right thing to do. And then after the fact, like once you gather more data points and you realize like, well, that, you know, it was kind of a mistake. I'm going to put that label on that mistake. But those things just happen. They are human. And what's key is how do you handle it afterwards? Like, do you show up and you apologize and you say like, I'm so sorry. Like, it's not the, the mistake was not you guys interpreting me wrong. That Again, like put the fault on them. But it's saying like, I could have. I should have messaged this differently. I should have handled this differently. And, and um, you know, here's the lesson that I take from it. And I'm sorry for the, the, all the, the drama or the, maybe not the drama, but the stress or the worry that, that this caused. And you own the whole, you own the situation, you stand up for it. And that creates so much trust and respect for a leader and someone can actually do this and then apologize, like a heartfelt apology. Um, a lot of people are worried about sort of losing respect if they do that, but it's it's the complete opposite. It's the one thing that actually creates a sense of trust and respect among people. Yeah, and you kind of have to renew it periodically because whether it's because you've taken on a new level or role or you've switched direct reports or you've 
sometimes reach that phase where you think, oh, I totally get this. I know exactly what I'm doing because I've been doing this for a while. And then circumstances changed and you need to basically renew your vow in a sense. Um, it's not something that you get to do kind of just once, right? <laughs> it's not like you kind of make the realization and you say the right words yeah. and everybody knows about it and then you move on. There are all kinds of situations uh, in the life of a leader that sort of reset it. And you can miss three months where you need to do this because you sort of got complacent and said, oh, well, I already said it to these people or I already thought about it this way for this team. So it's over. But it's good to have you on board to uh, yeah. to uh, point it out when when I need to do that. Yeah, good pointer. Yeah, totally. Those things can be repetitive and it may feel like oh, I've already done it before. That, that's how you feel it. But most other people like, no, I love hearing it. Keep saying it and they're busy with their own lives. So you hardly ever repetitive to them on the receiving end. So I have uh, a couple more here and I'm going to go with the scarier one first because I really like what we got out of, uh, of the first one. So we have this, and I think this one is interesting too, because it deals with me as both uh, a leader and a, you know, a direct report, someone in the, the middle of the organization. And it also has to do with repetition, which is something we were just talking about. So I'm having this issue that, you know, sometimes I'm bringing up a, a concern with, a, with my manager or with a group of, of leaders that I think is important. And for whatever reason, it doesn't get responded to, or it doesn't get dealt with, or it doesn't get prioritized. And I experienced this intense frustration when I bring it up the second or third time. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a burning frustration. And at some point I get the feedback, that's how it works. It's not the group's job description to remember what I brought up before, which is actually fine. But at the same time, as a person who's trying to be effective, it seems mind blowing to me. Well, if there's clearly a problem and I've clearly noticed it um, and it's not getting solved, what other avenue do I have other than bringing it up over and over again and saying, by the way, we know this is really important because I brought it up 10 times before and it's still true. Um, and I feel like uh, a kid in elementary school who as teacher has thrown away your assignment and given you a zero because you wrote your name in the wrong color of ink about this feedback. Um, where the hell do I go from there? I'm supposed to be a mature director of engineering, right? And I'm uh, recycling, you know, uh, not, not uh, really bad, but, you know, sort of figurative childhood trauma at this simple piece of feedback. <laughs> and, you know, the, the matter of getting these things prioritized and dealt with is actually genuinely important, not just for me, but for the company. So, I mean, the stakes are relatively yeah. high. And I came to you with this one as well, right? So, yeah. Uh, what, what did you think? Did you think, wow, this is the first grown-up, high-positioned person I've ever dealt with who has felt like a child in the middle of a, a work dilemma or... <laughs> In fact, is this usually part of the puzzle? Well, it's, it, yeah, it's, I mean, it's so common because again, we're all just humans. Um, but also I think, uh, just as I re listen to you again, sort of recap that situation. Um, I love this quote by Byron Katie. She says, when you argue with the reality, you lose with 100% of time. <laughs> and I think it's just, 
you know, we can be in a situation like that and recognize like, I have to like bring up the same issue over and over again. And I can argue with it and say like, it shouldn't be that way. And why aren't they? And I feel like a child and this is, we're all adults and, and what's wrong here or what am I doing wrong? And I just argue with it. But the fact is, and truth is that at least all organizations that I've seen so far, this happens because everyone has an agenda and everyone has priorities. And then when there is a leadership team that has to deal with all of them, certain things get dropped. And it's often also the case, the person who keeps bringing it up or advocating for it and speaks up, not necessarily the loudest voice in the, in the room, but the one who seems to be more most persistent, those are the ones who will get the attention over time. And you have to be repetitive and you have to repeat yourself and bring it up again and try different angles and maybe talk to different people. That's just part of how to advocate and get stuff done and, and get buy-in from people. And so there's this, this idea, just as I reflect, you know, listen to you back again, this sometimes we just got to let go of the fact that this is reality. And now I can either resist it and argue against it and be defensive or think it should be different, or I can just accept it and say, this is, this is humans. This is us. This is the organization. Or this is just the, the dynamic that I have in this role and with this leadership team. And so stop fighting. It's just be part of it and, and, you know, navigate a way that works best with this situation at hand. And again, sort of with the, as with the last example, there's an interesting subtlety that comes to my mind here because both sort of, I think the way a lot of us are trained in school and in our careers and also with the increasing focus on sort of having data and documentation for everything because our technology now allows us to do this. Part of my instinct is to document the situation and me bringing it up every time it came up because that eventually will look like a graph that looks like the other graphs that we look like look at where the curve is going exponentially up about how bad this is or exponentially up about how much money we're making or whatever. And in this particular mm -hmm. instance, that is frowned upon. <laughs> Uh, people do not react to that well, even though in some other places, if you don't come with your chart of data points or your history of, you know, this came up on September 1st, and then it came up again on December 15th, people think you have no accountability. And yet in this example, mm -hmm. where I'm, where what I'm sort of trying to show is this, we keep not dealing with this problem and it keeps getting worse. The response is, why are you so obsessed with this problem? Why are you so defensive about it? Why are you, you know, why are you, it's like they think I'm the guy from uh, a beautiful mind, you know, and I have a, a shed out back where I have, you know, all these like pieces of yarn connecting previous incidents where this thing came up before, you know, um, which again, the, the, the initial instinct is something I've been taught is considered, you know, sort of proactive and even more than proactive, sort of desirable, a mark of distinction, sort of keeping a paper trail or a data trail, right? And in this case, mm -hmm. it's felt that it's, it's viewed as some sort of um, obsession or accusation. So how the heck did you help me <laughs> determine what the difference was between those two different versions of this? Um, well, I think you have one way that you go, and this is sort of your natural preference or your natural style. And then you try that. And then when you recognize this kind of doesn't work, or it, I'm not meeting like open ears, I'm not getting the attention that I want. Um, it then try something else like something is not working it reminds me a little bit of um, 
it's the moment when just a quick anecdote my parents they live in europe and so my dad was visiting and he doesn't speak english really well and he was asking somewhere where the, the restroom was in a restaurant and the woman kept saying it in english but she was using the exact same words over and over and my dad didn't understand and she just said it again and again and again and i soon sort of a little bit of distance and i could observe what was going on and i thought he does not understand the words that you're using so how about you use sign language or you change the words like simplify what you're saying put the words in different orders but try something else he's not deaf like he he doesn't speak english so try something else and she didn't. She kept saying it about four times over until I interjected. <laughs> um, sometimes because we think this is the, the right way to go and it, it's worked in the past and I got to do it again or try harder and do more. But maybe it's just, hold on. Why again? Like, why, why is this not hitting home? Like, why is this an issue for me? But others think I'm obsessed with it. Where is this coming from? Do you remember what it was for you? Uh, the what was the shift? The moment when I realized I had to do something differently. Yeah. I mean, the feedback eventually resonated with me. So that was the moment. But why did it come about? Because the first time I heard the feedback, I was like, this is ridiculous. That doesn't make any sense. That's not how it's supposed to work. The realization was that essentially the, the thing that I thought was the thing that was supposed to change was never going to change or was never going to bring mm -hmm. about... Um, sustainable change so that mm -hmm. so long as I stuck to my kind of principles or my instincts on this, it didn't matter how committed I was to the ideal. It didn't matter how hard I tried to find the next method. If I was changing, I can't mm -hmm. remember what are all the different things in your model, but the, the, the one with primacy is the thoughts, right? Yeah, because, yeah, so you're speaking to the point, there's a circumstance and the circumstance we cannot change. It's just, that's the, that's the way it is. And then it's also neutral. Circumstances are completely neutral. What's not neutral is our thoughts that we have about these circumstances. So the, our interpretations, our assumptions, all of that, or our beliefs. And then our thoughts create our feelings, our feelings fuel our actions. And as we know, actions create results. So when you're stuck in a situation or when you're challenged with anything, it's either the circumstance that you think is the issue, it's the thoughts that you have about the circumstance, it's the, um, the feelings, so something that you feel, it's an action that you're taking or a habit, or then it's the results. So one of these five things, always one of those things that people come to me with, a feeling, an action or a habit, a result that I don't like, or a thought or a belief that they have, or a circumstance. The circumstance that we cannot change, that's just, it is. What you can change all the time, even if there is an other person and you think the whole problem is the other person, or the whole problem is the company, or the whole problem is the, the technical solution, it always goes back to your agency and your way to change and be more effective or deal with the problem and solve it is starts with your thoughts and your interpre interpretation about the situation or about the other person. And that's what creates a chain reaction because your thoughts will, will trigger your feelings. Feelings fuel your actions. It's coming back. It's coming back to me now because it, it wasn't really the same solution for all of the topics, but one of the sort of mm -hmm. overarching thought patterns was recognizing that I found that there are some people in the organization who 
have a very reactive style of management and leadership, which is that they don't seem to really want to dig into anything until they want to, and then they really want to do it. And I mm -hmm. frame that as perhaps this is an optimization for the problem that I'm facing, which is simply, it's not that they're ignoring that thing. It's not that they don't know how to be proactive. It's that they've made a shrewd judgment that their counterpart or the organization isn't ready for that topic right now. So as much as it would mm -hmm. be important to solve it, they would be putting themselves in the same position that I was in where I found I kept bringing up the thing over and over again. It just couldn't get anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I also realized, I think I knew this about myself, even outside of work. That's how I always want to do it. I always want to hit mm -hmm. the five scariest or worst things that can happen in advance because I know they're coming. So why don't we start working on them now? And I had found myself frustrated even with people who were unwilling to engage in that kind of thinking on a topic with me when they would say something like, I don't think we really know that that's exactly what the problem is going to be. It would probably be not that effective to dig into that now. If a problem comes up, we can deal with that. And for me, mm -hmm. the problems that you know are coming are always like miserable to deal with when they come up. But maybe in a framework where you need buy-in and you need uh, a team and that mm -hmm. team and is just not ready for that buy-in, maybe reacting to things actually isn't as miserable or as difficult or, you know, 10 times harder than dealing with them in advance. So it opened mm -hmm. up a whole set of possibilities. But I think the specific thought pattern was on some of these, I was like, okay, I'm putting these away. I'm, mm -hmm. you know, I'm retiring the, I'm retiring the log of all the times that I talked about it. And mm -hmm. when it comes up, if the, if the future issue that I'm imagining actually comes up, I'll be sort of well-prepared to, you know, speak about, speak on it as a person who's thought about it in detail. And maybe yeah. that won't be so bad. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the switch that happened there is that you, instead of saying, not that you said that, but instead of like a lot of people's head, what's going on in their head is that they think you're just stupid or you don't get it. You don't see the issue. You, you, it's just not the right thing to do. You're wrong. And they're trying to sort of prove that they're right and they're wanting to make a point and And that creates that tension. And it often like it actually the root cause is simply the different way that we look at things and what's important to us and what we value. So some people may really value you know, this proactivity and reducing risk and being diligent and making the right decision. And someone else doesn't care about that so much. Like they are way more driven um, by what's currently going on and, and like setting ambitious goals and then tackling what's right in front of them. They don't want to go into the methodical or proactive or risk management kind of topics. And so it's different approaches. And instead of sort of seeing them as contradicting and one wants to be right and they see the other person as being wrong, the shift here is to say, okay, well, I'm going to try to influence and I'm going to try my best to make my case. And at some point, you know what? You're seeing something and I'm not seeing and I'm now accepting that it that you have a different perspective on this. And maybe I need to learn from you and appreciate the fact that you're looking at it differently because there's something I might not see. We can learn from each other. We can be better together and find sort of a more balanced approach. And in your case, that was 
you know what? I did my upfront research and I have a contingency plan. If we ever get to that point where now it, the problem seems to be more urgent and I'm ready to address it. And for the time being, I'm going to let that go. Not holding on to it and holding a grudge or feeling like, um, I'm not being heard um, and feeling frustrated about it. You just let that go. So the other one comes from quite early in the journey. It was kind of, it wasn't easy, but it was kind of relatively smooth sailing at the beginning of when I first started leading a team. I think it was after the first quarter, we had a significant change to the structure of the teams that I was leading. And all of a sudden I started having some issues. And the story isn't really about what the nature of the specific issues was, but more about all of a sudden I'm having some challenges and I feel like kind of from day one on the job until this moment and still continually, I feel like the best manager ever in the one-on-ones. And it doesn't matter what the topic is. It doesn't matter whether it's personal growth. It doesn't matter whether it's a technical challenge we have in the team. The conversations just seem to work so well. And when there are obstacles, I sort of know the right techniques to get around them. And people seem sort of genuinely appreciative of what I'm providing to them in that, you know, whether it's an official one-on-one or it's sort of an ad hoc chat or whatever, it just seems to be relatively easy to, to, to solve when we, when we talk about it together. And even when I sort of bring up some of these challenges that the team is experiencing, I feel pretty great about it based on the results of the one-on-one conversations. And the challenges that don't respond to that one-on-one treatment, areas where the team is still having troubles, I feel like I need to bring them up in the group setting in one way or another. And in the group setting, on the other hand, I feel completely ineffective. So at this moment where I'm sort of experiencing the first major growing pains as a manager, I feel completely ineffective in the group setting, Uh, which is not a problem that I had before. I felt fine in group settings in my other work, but just not at this moment of starting to have some growing pains as as a new manager. And no matter what technique I take when I'm trying to work with the group, whether I try to focus on the technical details or whether I try to focus on the team processes or the personalities or I try to say, hey, let's have a break or a separate session that's not part of our usual business where we just kind of chat about how we feel about how the team is doing or whatever. It doesn't work out the way I want. Things don't seem to be going better. And I I feel like the most ineffective leader in the world because no matter what I try, the response I get is sort of silence or I get hey, sorry, we don't really understand what what you're getting at. And that's not what I'm used to from my work with teams before this, and it's also not what I'm used to in the one-on-one conversations. And I know that I don't have a problem with this in my soul. I used to be able to talk to this group of people as a group and not get that response. And I know that I can communicate about these topics because I'm having fabulous one-on-one conversations. And some of these core challenges are stretching on and not getting better for, I don't know, maybe up to six months. And I don't know if you remember more concretely what timeline it was, but I'm starting to think and I'm starting to tell you that this is getting kind of scary for me. I have a matter of efficiency or process that I'm trying to improve. And for six months, it's not moving. And all of these things are sort of mostly not moving. And I keep feeling like I'm kind of running in circles until I get to the same moment where I'm in front of a group and I'm trying a new tactic. And I'm still getting back silence or I'm getting back, 
hey, Joshua, this is really complicated the way you're explaining this, and we're not really sure what you're talking about. And I got to a point, finally, after working with you, where it's not like that anymore. So, Ramona, how did you get me out of this? I don't even know if I remember, actually. I, I, I don't think I even wrote down in my notes how we actually overcame this. Well, I think um, what, what might be helpful for the audience here is to recognize how you found yourself in a situation where you realized somehow I'm not coming across the way that I want, so I'm not getting the results that I want. And to to notice in that moment, okay, something I need to, I think this is like a moment where you said, I need to talk to Ramona about this because it's bothering me. I, I don't want this and I don't understand where this, where this is coming from. Um, and then what could be, what could easily turn into sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy is that when you think, and this is where I'm doing a quick side comment here, what could happen is that you think, okay, I'm clearly way better in one-on-ones and I'm struggling as a leader in a team environment. And so the more you start telling yourself the narrative or that story of I am way more effective in one-on-ones and then when it's in groups, it starts gets challenging and I sort of don't get to come across the way I want. If you don't actually address this in the moment, those are the things that start forming beliefs. And I think this is why, as a quick side note, I think why it is so important to insert leadership development early on when people start building those habits and start forming those beliefs about themselves and those they, they take on those identities about who they are as a leader that happens in their first few years as a leader it doesn't happen five ten years later at that point those patterns are already set though but those those beliefs and those identities are already set and you know when we look at research and we can see that the average manager receives their first leadership training about 10 years into their first leadership wow. role it, that is way too late way too late so imagine you didn't have the time to, or didn't have a coach, or didn't have the, the awareness that this was an issue. And you start thinking, you know, one-on-one's great, team meetings, an issue. Now you start avoiding bringing stuff up in team environments, and you want to navigate everything in one-on-one conversations. And then your team meetings start becoming ineffective. You're not addressing the elephant in the room. You're not able to, like, create that team environment and bonding experience for, for your team members. That has a ripple effect, right, for the years that will come for you as a leader, but instead recognizing it early on, seeing what is actually the challenge, why am I not coming across? Like we did, what we did some work on is reflecting back of like, how do you feel as a leader? Where is it actually that you feel you're getting, you're, you're running into a wall where it's not working and how you get stuck, changing your perspective on those situations, but then also not making sure, I think part of what I wanted to focus on is making sure that you're not making that part of who you are as a leader, that you're not letting that sit in as, as a belief that in team meetings, you're not effective or you're hitting walls. Yeah. And one of the interesting subtleties for me as I was trying to do that is I think I was aware of the fact that you're not supposed to try to solve every problem based on the sort of knowledge of technology that you had from before, your knowledge of the actual domain of what the team works on from before. You're a manager now. You're supposed to, to some degree, try to do some of what you alluded to earlier, Ramona, of being sort of this external person, someone who abstracts to more of a high-level view, um, as, as you're able to do as someone who really doesn't know what we're working on and is really just looking at the sort of organizational and, and people issues and leadership issues. 
And you're supposed to try to sort of adopt that perspective, even if you do happen to know the technology, or at least you're supposed to, to strike the right balance. And I think a couple of the things that in spite of being very aware of that and, and having people trying to train me on that, there were worries that I had because I thought that when I tried to go to that external level or that more abstract level, people might react badly for different reasons. They might react because they would think that I wasn't giving credence to the exact details of what were happening. They would sort of resist the transition to that more abstract level. Or if I would sort of try to reframe, they would see that reframing as sort of a dismissal. That it would sort of be like I was saying, well, you know, everybody, you think this problem is really about um, some technical problem you had in your last sprint. But really, um, I'm a manager and I'm sort of an abstract thinker and I know a better way to look at it. And that they would sort of see that as some sort of dismissal of their core concerns. So this was a kind of a razor's edge and a particularly thorny item for me because even though through various things I was reading and, and working with you and maybe even some input I was getting from my own own leaders, I was very aware of the need to make this shift and sort of act like a more external person, act like more of a coach and mentor and not a person who really knows the nuts and bolts of the of the situation. I had a bunch of different ways that I thought this could go wrong. And I think it's a really good thing to take a look at three to six months into a young leader's career is not to say, have you made that transition to sort of being out of the team and not relying on your old skills, but essentially how skilled are you and how comfortable are you at, at balancing those different techniques when you need them. And what I worry about or what I think could be, you know, really not work well, even for people who, are experienced managers and very technically skilled if they're not coaches in their soul or if they haven't had some training on this as I did, um, that they could be deep into their careers and not be able to do this and really sort of, you know, continuously make teams feel as though they're either over controlling them or sort of dismissing their core concerns, you know, those being sort of problems at either end of the spectrum. If you're focusing on how well you know what's really going on in the team and how to do that job, it's like you could be over-controlling them, and if you're focusing on that high-level perspective, you could be making them feel like you're dismissing their day-to-day -day reality. And so I think if you don't have training and, and sort of an evaluation of that over time, this could really go awry. Yeah, and, you know, oftentimes um, I get pushback, right? So sometimes I would say, I'd say, like, look, here's what this seems to me like, or here is what I'm getting at and tell me if I'm right or wrong. And sometimes people push back and say like, no, I actually disagree. And there's not, I think that's part of like the discovery to figure out what is actually going on. Could it be that one person is new to the team and that person changes the dynamic or that that person um, creates, like has something to, um, or that person intimidates others or interrupts others. And so people start dis disengaging. Like there, there are many, many different angles and we're all exploring in the moment. I think what's key though is when an issue like this comes up and you say like, I noticed for six months, this has been going on and starting to really bother me. It's like, okay, you could either do nothing. And it's likely that if you talk again in six months, you would still say it's still bothering me. Nothing has changed. 
or we can say, okay, stop, let's discover and like, let's explore what has changed. Um, is there a new person on the team? Is there, and, and has the format of the meeting changed? Has the environment, the, the situation, or for example, did you work remote during that time period? That has changed a lot in terms of effectiveness and things needed to be adapted and changed and, and what worked in the past in an office no longer works and, and so forth. We're just exploring. We're discovering like what is going on because I promise you that if something is not working, there is a better way. Are you open to talking about it and challenging your assumptions? Or are you saying like, no, I have done this many times and it's always worked. It was not always the same situation. It wasn't always with the same people. And I think the key here is too, is that for leaders to be effective, it is not about them building like the strongest leadership skills themselves as like the, the real tactical skills or for them to develop the strongest leadership style. Um, instead, it is... The, to develop the ability to flex their style, like to be okay to not do it based on your own comfort zone and to not do it based on your personal preference and based on how you've always done it, but being able to adapt depending on what the situation requires from you. So there is a, your unique leadership style. And then there's a next layer is what your re role requires from you. Are you in a fast growing startup? Your leadership style needs to adapt versus if you're in a, like a, in an existing, pretty stable organization, it requires different um, style. And then the next layer out from that is what do the each individual team member, what do they need? And how does this as a team, what does your actual team need from you? And then being able to adapt depending based on these three layers. Yeah, something about the managers and leaders I've come into contact with over the years, if if these are sort of, I don't know if it's a spectrum or two different measures between sort of how much are they doing what they're doing because it works for that situation or the others around them and how much are they doing what they're doing because it worked before. Mm -hmm. I guess it's a different balance with different personality types and different kinds of leaders at different stages of their career. I've had an opinion about what's the right way to do it. Which, if you're right in what you just said, I've been validated. <laughs> yeah. Leadership is not a, it's not a light switch that you like turn on and off and all of a sudden you get promoted and then you learn the skill and then you're good. It's a dimmer and you have to constantly like dim that light and, and move the, move the dimmer up uh, to, to brighten the light. And I think if you, that, that's what I love about thinking about your leaders as the leaders that you have as role models and all the things that they do and reading biographies and books about their own development and how they keep challenging themselves and all of the successful ones, they have some form that they keep reinventing themselves and keep challenging themselves and reflecting on themselves. The vast majority of the ones that we see today, they work with coaches that have a whole team behind them that that they have a support because even the highest performers, they have backup and they have um, a support system around them that helps them keep challenging themselves and growing and adapting. They're not, they didn't turn the switch and they're like, I'm good now. This is it. This is me. <laughs> My personal vision for how we can improve work and how we can improve society is how we can get most people 
to be able to do some of this for per, for the person sitting into the chair to their right and the person sitting in the chair to their left. So regardless of their job title, function, of, you mentioned these great leaders that we have that have this team of coaches and educators and whatever working for them. To me, the next step is, and I, I used to refer to this as that I want to work in a place where everyone is a teacher and everyone is a student. But I think mm -hmm. there's an additional piece of that because when I would always say that, it sort of reflected just a binary willingness to do it. But mm -hmm. you're now showcasing that it's more than that. It's also a willingness to keep adjusting it and continuously sort of improving it and evaluating it and changing it. To, to create that environment of having teachers and um, students at the same level, you have to give up the idea of wanting to be right. Like that need, I want to be right, that one you have to let go. It's like, I want to be effective and I want to learn, you know, and also be willing to challenge others around me and do it in a, in a compassionate, kind way. But you got to give up that need to be right. Great take-home message for the podcast episode, and we're about out of time. So it's been super fun talking to you, as always. Just so happens this Same time here. we're recording it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a little bit more abstract, trying to create sort of overall message that hopefully people can, you know, think about and reflect on and see how that shows up for them and how um, and what it means to, to their own leadership development. Yeah, well, I'm really excited, as always, to see how people respond to this episode. One of the things I've really enjoyed is that we, or I kind of have changed up, not necessarily the format, but I've hit pretty different topics and pretty different kinds of guests over the last three or four episodes. So it's really exciting to see how the audience reacts to the different topics or the ways we approach it. And I'm actually really excited to see if they sense the vulnerability that was required for um taking the conversation to this level <laughs> i'm i bet i like kudos to you for doing this and for showing up and also sort of uh leading a path and being open about talking about these things it's like people who go on stage you don't see how much preparation happens in the background right and how how much work they put into these things and i think you know open up and and speaking a little bit about those coaching experiences and moments when you hit a roadblock and how you overcame them. Yeah. Super helpful. Thank you for, thank you for doing this. And thanks so much for uh, agreeing to join and, uh, and giving us the time today. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Tasha. If you love this show, then you'll love even more my free training for new managers. If you haven't watched this training yet, then I'll strongly encourage you to sign up at RamonaShaw.com forward slash masterclass. You'll discover the key shifts you'll need to make as a new manager and the number one most common mistake to avoid. Plus, you'll walk away with actionable tips that you can apply in your role right away. Go to RamonaShaw.com forward slash masterclass to sign up.